welcome to week 22 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. This week, I am looking at the novels written by Eva Ibbotson for adults. Already known for romping, joke-packed children's books, she wrote her first romance, A Countess Below Stairs, in 1981. I came across it, along with her second novel, Magic Flutes, in Aberdeen Central Library a couple of years later. My first year in Aberdeen, I lived in one of the halls of residence, but the second year I moved out. I had the romantic notion of living in a cottage in the middle of nowhere, as at that stage I had a car, a mini clubman, bright orange, christened Simon Julius Rose, Simon J for short. I know cars are meant to be female, but Simon J was masculine and much loved. Up to seven of us would squeeze into him in the early hours of the morning, drive along the beach at Balmedy, and end up at the all-night bakery, where, after 4am, you could buy freshly baked rowies, flat, round, flaky bread rolls, oozing with salty butter. I can't remember how it came about, but I signed up to rent a bedroom in a cottage on the Ellen Road near a place called Tippity. It was then about 35 to 40 minutes out of Aberdeen, but now it looks as though the road has become a dual carriageway and it's only about 20 minutes drive from from King's College, the main university campus. I had the front bedroom, which came with a paraffin heater and views of the northern hills. Simon and Yvonne shared the back bedroom, which was sunnier. Our landlord was a local farmer who visited monthly for our cash and chatted incomprehensibly in the local dialect Doric. It was not very workable. Unfortunately, on the drive up to Aberdeen in September, I had left Edinburgh via the Queensferry Road and a hearse had cut across a junction and smashed into me. Yes, it did have a coffin in it. It was my first major accident in a car. Simon Julius's front left wing had crumpled, but the tyres seemed fine and I carried on to drive the three hours or so to Aberdeen a little shaken. I did find myself having to wrestle harder than usual with the steering, but made it in one piece. I moved into the cottage and then took Simon Julius to a garage the following day. When I went back, the mechanic told me I was lucky to be alive. The axle was cracked and it was a miracle that the car had made the journey intact. It was a write-off. I was dependent on the local bus service and lifts from Simon and Yvonne. It was grim. I liked Yvonne, a pretty blonde who made money on the side dressing up as a policewoman to arrest grooms at stag nights. But Simon was a pill. They were both psychology students, a couple of years older than me. Simon was devoted to his two Vauxhall Cavaliers, making homebrew and bad wine out of whatever fruit was cheap at fine fair and setting his farts alight with his best friend, also called Simon. At the time, I was going through something of a romantic drought and Simon took enormous pleasure in telling me that I had to get my act together or I'd end up a withered spinster as university was the only place to meet your future husband. To be fair, I did meet the man who eventually became my husband at university in my final year for the grand total of five minutes. It was only some years later when we were both living in London that we became friends and then romantically involved. Does that count? I'm not sure. The cottage was mortally cold. 
And I remember spending weekend after weekend wrapped in my duvet, the paraffin heater reeking with fumes as I tried to read set texts and write essays. Fortunately, the farmer decided to boot us all out of the cottage just before Christmas. I think his daughter got pregnant and he was going to install her and the father in the cottage come January. I then moved into a house with three friends on Springfield Gardens, to the west of the city and at the time on its outskirts. It was around this time that I really began using the Central Library. It's on Rosemount, a hop and a skip from the art gallery, which showed art house films on Thursday evenings. Rather than hauling all the way back home to Springfield Gardens, I would hang out in the library until it was time to watch the film and then either catch a bus or cycle home. The university library was for serious reading, for critical analysis and also for listening to music. There was a music library with turntables, headphones and a magnificent collection of classical music and operas. Thanks to the Joseph Losey film of Don Giovanni and the Zeffirelli film of La Traviata, I had fallen in love with opera. Rather than sitting in the main body of the library, I would hole up in the music library and listen to Verdi and Mozart, La Wally and Fidelio whilst working and then began at Christmas and birthdays to ask for cassettes as I discovered the absolute joy of cycling while listening to arias on my Walkman. The central library was where I caught up on romance. Now on a student budget, I could no longer afford to buy my own books and of course no longer had a steady stream of books shared by my fellow boarders at school. I was reading voraciously and being chaotic was always short of cash. I attempted to write my very first Mills and Boone. I wrote it longhand and typed it laboriously on an electric typewriter back home over the Easter holidays. It was dreadful. The hero was called Elliot. So romantic. He and the heroine were in a string quartet together and she kept slapping him because he was block-headed and irritating, hardly likely to appeal to readers. At the Central Library, once I had worked through all the hairs, I ended up browsing the nearby shelves with eye and discovered a book called A Countess Below Stairs. It opens with a prologue set in pre-revolutionary Russia, about an aristocratic family called Grozinski. I was immediately hooked. We had covered late 19th century Russian history and the Russian Revolution in my A-level. I was a huge fan of the film of Dr. Zhivago and had begun reading Chekhov's short stories, The Plays Were to Come, as well as various cheesy fictional accounts of Russian nobility brought low by the revolution. Ibbotson's writing has the quality of a fairy story or a fable with an inexorable pace, taking us to the very brink of the abyss, the chasm of unhappiness that awaits the hero, Rupert Frayne, Earl of Westerholm, and owner of the precariously situated world of Mersham, his country seat, should his marriage to the terrible Valkyrie, Muriel Hardwick, proceed. He knows by the time that he is about to walk down the aisle that his true love is Countess Anna Grazinski, the treasured and determined daughter of Russian aristocrats. Spoiler alert, Ibbotson produces two wonderfully funny and within the parameters of the story, logical deus ex machina interventions that save Rupert from his fiancée and restore the Grazinski fortunes allowing our hero and heroine to marry and live happily ever after. 
A Countess Below Stairs, now retitled as The Secret Countess, was published in May 1981 and it was one of the books that helped me during the winter and spring of 1984 overcome the depression that had dogged me since my mid-teens. Although, of course, in those days, nobody recognised or realised that teenagers could be vulnerable to depression. After A Countess Below Stairs, I read Magic Flutes, which is about the opera. And then in 1985, she published A Company of Swans about ballet. Along with Hare, these three books were part of a reset for me that allowed me to move beyond adolescent anime and cynicism, to engage with what it means to live a good life, to recognise and avoid vices. Ibbotson's protagonists are virtuous in an Aristotelian sense. They are courageous, high-minded, modest, wise. Her antagonists are embodiments of vices of both deficiency and excess. Venal, vulgar, spiteful, shameless, solipsistic. She is a writer willing to take her protagonists to places of despair and deep grief before she can reward them with happiness. She shows bad things happening to good people, but ultimately there is triumph, and at its heart is love, true love. The conception of love embodied in Ibbotson's heroines is one founded on generosity, gallantry, munificence. She shows that when one loves truly, there are no boundaries that love expands and enriches, that it is multi-layered and boundless, that the more we love, the more we are capable of love. The love that her heroes and heroines demonstrate is physical, emotional, spiritual and life-enhancing. It is a bountiful, compassionate, open-hearted love that intensifies and enriches. Her books are romantic but they are also full of wisdom and sparkle with her own love of music, literature, nature. They are also deeply informed by her own life, a complicated one. Like the wondrous Judith Carr, author and illustrator of the Mog books, The Tiger Who Came to Tea and When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, Ibbotson was from an intellectual Jewish family. Carr's family were based in Berlin. Ibbotson's parents were Viennese. Because their parents were prominent and outspoken in the early 1930s about the rise of Nazism, both Carr and Ibbotson left their home cities as young children, exiled, saved from the direct ravages of the Holocaust, but displaced and dislocated. Both landed up in London. Carr, a talented artist from an early age, was awarded a scholarship to study art at Central School, whilst Ibbotson, a couple of years younger, followed in her father's footsteps and studied science, first at Bedford College in London, then at Cambridge. Both married Englishmen and had long, happy marriages. Both women's work, implicitly or explicitly, celebrate warmth, love and, above all, home. The other joy of Ibbotson's books is her writing. 
Her prose is elegant, witty and clear. There are wonderful pen portraits of quirky minor characters. The books are richly plotted with wild coincidences, misunderstandings and accidents that first may separate but then eventually reunite her lovers. There are gloriously slapstick moments and delicate scenes that still, after many rereadings, make me reach for my Kleenex. We are guided by a sure-footed mistress through plots that take us to Austrian castles, Amazonian fazendas, from the Natural History Museum in Vienna to the Northumbrian coast, from bare, impoverished rooms and flats to havens of luxury and lusciousness. When the world seems full of charlatans and purveyors of toxic politics and projects, cruelty and vicious brutality, Ibbotson is restorative. She reminds us of what really matters in this messed up world of ours. Integrity, beauty, the glory of a fine garden, the joy of a perfect piece of music or art, and of course, love. Join me next week for a very different book, my first non-fiction nomination, a travel book that very much stands up to rereading. For week 23, we will take a trip to the US with Jonathan Rabin and his extraordinary trip down the Mississippi at the time of Reagan's first electoral triumph. Join me for Old Glory.